0: This is section 153 of Mark Twain, The Complete Interviews. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Interview number 153. Robertus Love. Mark Twain here as St. Louis's guest for the first time since 1861. St. Louis Post-Dispatch, May 29, 1902, page 1 and 2. Read by John Greenman. Mark Twain is here. That is, he was here until two o'clock when he boarded a train for Hannibal, while in St. Louis he took a nap at the Planter's Hotel. On the way downtown from Union Station he remarked, St. Louis reminds me of several cities, Philadelphia and other places. Then he went to sleep but it must not be taken for granted that mark twain went to sleep because st louis reminded him of philadelphia he courted a siesta because he was sleepy he was sleepy because he needed sleep it was the most natural thing in the world mark twain had been on a train two nights and a day he left new york night before last he didn't sleep well on the train that was not the fault of the train it was due to the weather the first night he was too cold, the second night he was too hot. He said so himself, and he never lies. The only real liar in this world, said Mark Twain to me on the train Thursday morning, somewhere this side of Litchfield, is the practical joker. I hate a practical joker. His aim in life is to deceive i never was a practical joker except when i was a boy and a boy has not sense the practical joker is a boy who never has grown up his head is full of stewed oysters instead of brains is mark twain aboard i inquired of high jenkins the merry-mouthed Ethiope who pilots the New York sleeper as head porter. "'Yes, sir,' replied High, wondering why on earth any man should want to see Mark Twain. It was just about daylight, a raw, chill dawn on the Illinois prairies, January jabbed into June, a latter May morning with March mercury. Still, it was the end of the night when Mark Twain got so hot that he couldn't sleep." "'Yes, sir, Mr. Twain is on this train. He's just putting his clothes on in the drawing-room. Say, that gentleman must be rich. He had the drawing-room all the way through.' "'Will you carry my card into Mr. Clemens's drawing-room?' I requested. "'Into who?' asked the porter. "'Say, I thought you wanted to see Mr. Twain.' Meekly I explained that Clemens was Mr. Twain's home name." "'What's he traveling under one of these yer a fur? for?' asked the porter. "'Mr. Clemens,' said I, "'is a writer, a man who writes funny books, and he uses Mark Twain when he writes.' "'Say, mister,' the porter said, "'I thought that man was a writer. He laid awake all night before last uh, reading a great big book. Funny's man I ever did see. Say, he didn't sleep a wink, that man didn't. Why'd you know that man?' This necessitated another explanation that Mr Clemens was bound to Missouri to receive the degree of LLD from the Missouri State University at Columbia. He's going to be doctored, said I. Say, look a here, mister, said Hi. Dat man don't need no more doctorin than I does. His skin's as pinky as a baby's. He's de healthiest man for an old man I ever see yet. How is Mr Clemens' appetite? I inquired. Mighty poor show's you, bone, replied the porter. I don't see how he keep up like he does eating so little. Why, that man ain't been out in the drawing room but once since we left New York. He come out to eat lunch. All the rest of the time he been inside or reading out of that great big book. As soon as you get my bed made, so there will be room for two. Missourians in this pigeon-hole, you can admit the gentlemen," said Mark Twain to the porter. When I was admitted, Mark Twain was enjoying coffee, bread, and butter, his breakfast. He gave a duplicate order for himself, and insisted upon his visitor eating what he wanted. The porter came in to take the second order, and Mark Twain paused between mouthfuls to look up at the smiling car-pilot and remark, where's the bill now don't you forget the bill sure i won't mr twain replied the porter but you look to me like a man who would forget it insisted the humorist you have the forget face i'm very much afraid you'll never present me that bill then mr clemens took occasion to explain how he happened to be cold on a reasonably warm night and hot on a cold night the first night i was aboard said he the porter thought it was going to be a hot night naturally because it is summer time i had only one blanket on my bed i got chilly it was so chilly that i was uncomfortable so i lay awake and read a good part of the night THAT PORTER WAS MISTAKEN. I DID SLEEP SOME. LAST NIGHT I DETERMINED TO BE PREPARED. SO I ORDERED AN EXTRA BLANKET, WHICH THE PORTER BROUGHT ME. BUT SOME OFFSPRING OF AN IDIOT TURNED ON THE HEAT, AND I ALMOST SUFFOCATED. THAT IS WHY MARK Twain WENT TO SLEEP SHORTLY AFTER REACHING ST. LOUIS, NOT BECAUSE THE TOWN REMINDED HIM OF PHILADELPHIA the fact is said mr clemens i don't know anything about st louis except from memory i haven't been here since eighteen sixty one that is to say i haven't been here really to stay any time i have flitted past once or twice in eighteen eighty five i lectured here in the old mercantile library hall but that wasn't a visit. In fact, I merely flitted past. I flit into many cities and flit out. I don't see the places. I just flit. I'm a flitter, and have been one for a good many years. But this time, Mr. Clemens, you are not going to flit. You will stay with us for a while, won't you? i'm going up to hannibal this time but i want to come back by way of st louis and stay a day or two if i don't get a telegram calling me back to new york i have some relatives here whom i have promised to visit but hannibal is my main point i am determined to see hannibal this time practically i may say that i have not been back to hannibal where i grew up for fifty years i have not been back there long enough to see the town and the people twelve years ago i went to hannibal to bury my mother but i was there only a day or a part of a day now i am going to see the place perhaps for the last time when a man gets to be sixty-seven he is about ready to wind up i don't feel old but the years are upon me there was bret Hart. i was with him in san francisco many years ago he was sixty-nine when he died the other day though the newspapers said he was sixty-two bret hart was two years older than myself so much older that i deferred to him on account of his age but i suppose if his ghost could be interviewed it would be glad to accept the newspaper estimate of sixty-two there's charlie warner charles dudley warner mr clemens was quick to add evidently fearing that i would not recognize in the familiar charlie the distinguished hartford literature who was his close neighbor for many years he's gone too most of the men i chummed with out on the pacific coast are gone noah brooks and charles warren stoddard are left Mr. Clemens showed heightened interest when his train reached the Mississippi River. He craned his neck to look up and down the stream, once so familiar to him as a steamboat pilot. "'See those ripples and curlicues?' said the author to a young woman who entered his drawing-room to get his autograph. And she got it, too, with a smile and a pat on the shoulder. Note bene. I promised not to mention this.' mark twain says he has writer's cramp and is scarcely able to make his mark autograph hunters he thinks should respect age unless they are unusually pretty girls those little curls on the surface said the humorist are quite familiar to me they are distinctive of the mississippi there is no other river i know of that has so many of them here was the old pilot cropping out. The Mississippi River pilot must know all those curves and curlicues, otherwise he is likely to run into Mark Twain water, only two feet deep, and hang up his craft on a bar for seven days. The ripples and curls show the depth or shallowness of the water, just as the smile curves or frown angles on a man's face show his character by the way mr clemens i remarked an old raft pilot on the upper river told me the other day that you never made a good pilot he thought you might have been a pretty fair one if you hadn't quit the business just about the time you had it learned and begun writing it takes a man he said about ten years or so to learn the business here was where mark twain woke up he saw a challenge and accepted it i'll venture that man he said was a mud clerk i'll venture he never knew me and had no opportunity to know whether i was a good pilot or a bad one i'll venture he's a no account pilot himself or he would not have shown his ignorance by making that remark rank on the river those days was very strict the captain and the pilot had a rank of their own at the top those under them never met them on terms of equality there was one grade and i guess your raft friend belonged to that which was made up of mud clerks cub pilots and strikers the mud clerk was the apprentice clerk the cub pilot was the apprentice to the pilot, and knew nothing about the business till he spent several years at it. The striker was the engineer's apprentice. Those three were equals. They never got near the captain or pilot in rank. Your man was on the upper river, you say. Where did he see me? I was on the lower river altogether." what did he know about the lower river some men never did make good pilots it is true but that was because they didn't have the faculty they were in the wrong business they were not born to be pilots others made good pilots naturally there was a horace bixby who taught me the business he was a pilot, but one of his assistants, whose name I can't recall, though he had a license, never was a pilot. He had been at the business twenty-two years, and still Bixby used to do part of his work and draw part of his salary because he couldn't steer a boat under any conditions whatever your raft man may think i reckon a man who could draw his own salary and part of another man's knew enough about piloting to get along and i did that changing the subject lest i should be compelled to give the name and town of the raft pilot and carry him a challenge to mortal combat on bloody island i asked mark twain why it was that he was popularly supposed to be the author of the famous jingle punch brothers punch with care punch in the presence of the passenger." when isaac h bromley editorial writer on the new york tribune died a few years ago his friends claimed that he was the author of the lines said i so he was replied mark twain he and noah brooks I saw the lines floating about in a newspaper, after having read the street-car placard which inspired them, and used the jingle in a sketch I wrote for The Atlantic Monthly, published in February 1876. I told how they had run in my mind until I was well-nigh crazy. Then I gave them to a Preacher friend of mine who carried the jingle in his brain until he delivered a funeral sermon in the sing-song rhythm of the punch rhymes and had the whole audience bowing and swaying in time to his rhythm i never made any claim to the authorship of the verses but noah brooks writes me twice a year Demanding to know why I am trying to steal his lines. These are the lines to which reference is made: Conductor, when you receive a fare, punch in the presence of the passenger. A blue trip slip for an eight-cent fare, a buff trip slip for a six-cent fare, a pink trip slip for a three-cent fare, punch in the presence of the passenger. Chorus: Punch, brothers punch with care punch in the presence of the passenger in april eighteen seventy five the new york and harlem street railroad horse-car route posted in its cars the following placards announcing that the punch system was adopted the conductor when he receives a fare must immediately punch in the presence of the passenger a blue trip slip for an eight-cent fare a buff trip slip for a six-cent fare a pink trip slip for a three-cent fare for coupon and transfer tickets punch the tickets this was the real father of the jingle said mark twain i have told noah brooks that i don't see how i could be accused of trying to claim the authorship of verse which the horse-cars might have written so musical was the jingle in the placards among the parodies of this famous jingle it may be appropriate to mention one in the western a st louis magazine of those days this publication appeared with a latin parody addressed to marco twain with this chorus pungite fraters pungite pungite cum amore pungite provectere diligensime pungite Algernon Charles Switzburn made a French reproduction of the jingle. But let us talk Missouri. Mark Twain is proud of the proffer of an LLD degree from the Missouri State University. What do I think of such a degree? he said. Well, you can see that I think enough of it to travel more than one thousand miles each way in my old age to get it but isn't it a fact mr clemens that its value is enhanced because it comes from missouri mr clemens tried to hedge on this question but when i asked him if he would go a thousand miles up in canada to receive an lld he replied with his honest smile you can rest assured i wouldn't the honesty of mark twain's smile is its chief characteristic one never has any suspicions about that smile. When the Mark Twain smile comes around, one doesn't think of locking the doors and hiding silver under the parlor rug. That smile is just what it purports to be—strictly honest, no humbug. Mark Twain wore the smile when he reached Union Station. He was thinking of the past. "'Once I flitted into St. Louis,' he said with James R. Osgood, the publisher. That was in 1880, when I came here to take passage down the river on a boat, to gather material for my book, Life on the Mississippi. I wanted to go under an assumed name, so the captains and pilots would tell me lies about the river otherwise i fear they might have told me the truth if they knew i wanted it for a book i went into the southern hotel and registered as james r smith the clerk looked at me and yelled front show mr clemens up to room two fifty six Mr. Clemens was much amused, because the Pullman porter was not acquainted with his fame. "'When I was swindling the public on the lecture platform with George W. Cable about fifteen years ago,' said he, "'Cable bet me that we could not find a person who had not heard of Mark Twain.' I took the bet." We went at once into a store on Broadway, New York, where pictures of all sorts of celebrities, actors, singers, and authors were kept. "'Let me see the latest picture you have of Mark Twain,' remarked Cable to the young woman at the counter. The girl looked puzzled, but she glanced up and down the long line of pictures on the wall, and, turning to Cable, asked, "'Where does she sing?' Mr. Clemens' remarks, anent the practical joker quoted early in this narrative, were called forth by a question as to the truth of a story about the presentation to him of a pipe by the printers on the Virginia City Enterprise, when he was a reporter there in his earlier days. Mark Twain's pipe, called The Remains, smelt so vile that the printers determined to get rid of it, one night they bought a new pipe for 30 cents that did not look like 30 cents in the gaslight. It looked like $30, but it was as much of a fraud as the $2 Panama hat. With touching speeches, they presented this pipe to Mark Twain, who responded feelingly, and threw the remains out of the window. That was the only time that Mark Twain ever was known to descend to pathos. The cheap pipe, split in Twain, Mark that, the first time the recipient smoked it, and Mr. Clemens went out in the yard and hunted up the remains. "'Yes,' he said in the train, "'that story is true, and I'm mad about it yet. It was a practical joke, and the cheapest form of wit is the practical joke. I wouldn't have cared if the pipe cost thirty cents or thirty dollars.' but when they came to me seriously and made the presentation as a costly pipe when it was a cheap affair that was another thing at union station mr clemens was met by dr j ross clemens of st louis a cousin whose guest he will be for a day or two after june fourth when he returns from columbia as dr samuel langhorne clemens the first missourian took a carriage for the planters where he looked over his mail then he visited the post-dispatch office and looked through the plant he was much pleased with the office the last printing office i knew anything about he said was the hannibal weekly courier that was in eighteen fifty two maybe i'll visit it again when i go up to hannibal this time then he went over to the planters and took a nap. End of interview number one hundred and fifty three read by John Greenman.